It's that time of week, the time you've been waiting for. It's time for Goat Gab, a weekly podcast about all things in the dairy goat industry. Sit back and enjoy an hour or so with your hosts, Laura Warren Hughes and Cameron Jedlowski, as we talk about ideas and topics that matter to the dairy goat world. Welcome back, everybody, to another episode of Goat Gab. We're so glad to have you here with us today. And as always, I'm one of your co-hosts, Laura Warren Hughes. And I'm the other co-host, Cameron Jedlowski. This week, we are having kind of a dream episode for, for myself and for Laura here. We're welcoming on all four Thompsons, Doug, Mary, Emily, and then Anna Thompson Hadjik as well there. Thompson, say hello and tell us about the farm there. Hello. Hi. <laughs> uh, yeah, this is Emily. So um, farm is busy. We have our last two does kidding, I think, uh, in the next three hours or so, four hours. And we freshened, I think, 19, had 40 kids born. But at least 20 of those have moved on to their new homes, so that's getting more manageable. And snow is gone, so we're just waiting for spring to arrive because it's cold. <laughs> it's really cold out. But, yeah, we're kind of move, moving into the milking, getting kind of starting to judge our own. We had little goat shows this morning and judging our own yearlings and two-year-olds and seeing how those udders are coming in and and getting excited for the first show in just a month. Awesome. Just a month. Wow. I can't – I can't believe that. It's a month from today. Oh, wow. Uh, Laura, I know on your farm this week, you guys made your first entries for your show, right? Yes. Um, actually, our first show is in two weeks. So um, this is the earliest that we've ever gone to a show. And it's a show that uh, the girls and I have wanted to hit for a long time. So um, a, a little nerve wracking thinking about the fact that I think it's 47 here today. And, um, you know, how much trimming up can we do to make these animals look good, but not freeze them. And, uh, our, our thought was kind of to hit, hit some early shows and then give them a nice long break before nationals. Cause you know, nationals is only about two months away from now, mm-hmm. two months and a little change. So that's, that's a little crazy to think about. Yeah. And it's, yeah, I don't even want to think about either a goat show or a national show, but I know it's probably on Anna's mind uh, being, and congrats, I want to congratulate you now publicly on judging your second national show now. Yeah, no, I, it'll be uh, exciting. I'm excited to, to I've, I've uh, been to Harrisburg now three times, all as an exhibitor. Um, actually, no, in 1997, I was the, um, the Aggie youth rep um, for Harrisburg when I was uh, 18. Uh, and so, yeah, to judge there uh, will be, will be fun. And I'm excited to judge with uh, a longtime mentor of mine, um, Dr. Joan Dean Rao, um, who I'll be, um, I'll be her consultant and she'll be mine. Uh, and so uh, the Nigerian breed is actually the main, my main breed. So that will be a lot of fun. And I'm looking forward to, you know, seeing all sorts of Nigerians from all over the country that will, will be there. So, yeah. Um, so yeah, yeah. Well, not very far off to- at all then. Yeah. No, not at all. Yeah. Crazy. It's crazy to think that I haven't even thought about a goat show and you guys are talking about how you guys are planning for your first shows. And I'm thinking, 
Oh my God. When the heck am I even going to get to a goat show before, uh, <laughs> before nationals? Uh, um, we're not going no, to no. obviously be showing our goats at nationals, but we are going to try to hit these early club, couple early club shows. And then we'll have our, our fair season uh, once late July uh, rolls around. So. Gotcha. And you guys will obviously be um, getting together at the great Minnesota get together as well there. Mm-hmm. Yeah. 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 I, I, I'm like, and I didn't go last year at the state fair cause I was more on the nervous side of COVID kinds of things than other family members were. And so I skipped it last year and watched it on the live stream, but I just got, I, we just bought some grandstand tickets. So we are for sure going this year and I'm excited. <laughs> we go back. The rest of us went and the rest. Of, yeah. My, the family all went with the, with the goats that they took and I, Back they have a thing choice. at the Minnesota State Fair that if you're a family that uh, shows for a consecutive 50 years, you get an special reward. And uh, so we lost a year with COVID, but we weren't going to lose another year last year. So we've got 40, I think it's 42 years in now. So it's uh, like all about survival right now. For year <laughs> <laughs> mark. When you look back over those 40 some odd years there, um, probably lots and lots of really neat memories and lots of pictures. I'm sure of um, toddler daughters sleeping, sleeping in um, pens at the state fair and um, first time out with a goat and showmanship. And I love that. I love thinking about those memories that are made. That's I, and I still remember some of those things because I'm still young, I guess, according my back doesn't (laughs) say so, but um. (laughs) Uh, speaking of my back, I, I heard it today as I was cleaning out pens, so that's wonderful. Mm-hmm. Um, but, uh, uh, you know, we recorded kind of a week off now, Laura, like a week between, and we'll drop this here next week. Um, but we've got some, we'll have an exciting new herd sire um, announced next week here on our farm. And then again, it's just a lot of maintenance mode and trying to move goats out, like uh, kind of, you know, the Thompson said there, it's, you know, it's time to evaluate your goats and get down to those numbers you want going into the show season. We did something a little bit different this year and I'm not, the jury's still out on whether or not we'll do it again, but um, we decided that we weren't going to sell any doe kids until we had really all of them on the ground to evaluate. Um, Last year we sold almost all of our kids out of some does that we really wanted to hang on to. So for example, um, we have a buck that is three now and we still don't have a fresh daughter of him on our farm because his kids were some of the younger ones. We ended up selling them and, and it just, it, it's just been kind of difficult. And as, as you know, when you keep a small herd, you really want to kind of see some certain animals. So uh, we have a whole glut of kids right now on the ground that, we're not able to move out because we really want to evaluate. So I don't know that this may not be something we try again after this year, but um, I'm kind of envious of those of you that are talking about moving your goats out and getting them to their new homes, because we know that we've got goats that are going to be leaving. We just haven't decided which ones those are yet. Well, we do something a little bit in that we, we kind of have a lot of reservation reservations that we fill and, you know, for Alpine doe kids, any, anyway, like, I might sell a couple more later this summer after I decide. So they might not be a, you know, officially for sale now. Cause I know that I'm not going to keep six or seven Alpine kids. Mm-hmm. I don't also feel like I have, they don't have to go now. Like they can go in July or August. Once I see their mothers, once I see how they're showing. And so 
Um, we have a lot that we move out, but we don't move out every single thing that we're going to sell um, right away in the spring. You know, we kind of have some for sure, but then I also kind of like to just see how they change and how their mothers change and decide in the, in the summer or the fall. I think we may get to that point eventually. Cause I think, I think everybody probably goes into breeding seasons knowing that, okay, these, these are animals that we're probably not going to go ahead and keep. And, and we probably will be happy to sell, sell out of, out of these animals and go from there. But um, I'm not telling anybody anything. It's a lot. Kids are just a lot of work. It's wonderful to get them on the ground. You're always happy to have baby goats. You know, it's, it's an exciting time of year, but man, it's just a lot of work. <laughs> oh yeah. yeah. Yes. I would agree with that there. Um, I don't think we have any ADGA news this week, at least on the short week here, but we do have a sponsor this week hailing from the great state of Minnesota as well. Uh, this week's sponsor is Laura and Chris uh, Keezer from Four Season Farms, or FSF, if you're familiar with them, uh, from the Midwest and you raise sonnens there. Laura and Chris raise a hardworking, productive doe uh, and consistent and hardworking herd of sonnens in central Minnesota. The herd prides itself having success with all three ADGA programs, linear appraisal, milk records, and of course, in the show ring as well. FSF has had many successes, including a 2020 top 10 doe, a 2018 spotlight sale kid that year. The convention was in the great state of Minnesota and various successes at regional shows as well, including grand champions, reserve grand champions, best of breeds, and a slew of other awards. To find out more information about Laura and Chris's four season farms, uh, find, find them on Facebook at uh, Four Seasons Farm, FSF Dairy Goats, or online at FSFGoats.com. Thank you, Laura and Chris, for being this week's sponsor. I was really fortunate in the fact that in the twenty eight at the 2018 National Show, Laura and Chris were pinned right across from us, and I hadn't met them before then. So uh, we had a just a delightful week pinning with them in Columbus and really got to know them and saw their beautiful animals firsthand. And they are just, they're beautiful, beautiful sonnens mm-hmm. and such nice people. Really enjoyed getting to know them. Really are. And Laura is such, such a great um, asset to our Minnesota Dairy Goat Association. She's done so much for our association um, and uh, yeah, beautiful herd, beautiful, productive herd of sonnens. Yes. Yeah, and she has she has taken one of my very favorite goat pictures that I know it's been on Facebook multiple times and I don't know how she captured it, but I think I think maybe it was at the Minnesota State Fair where she has like 15 sonnen heads that are all turned at the perfect <laughs> angle looking at the camera at the same time. Mm-hmm. Yep. Yep. Great picture. Yeah. Yeah. All right, cool. Thompsons. Are you ready to talk? And I, I'm I'm so excited about this episode. I told you guys before. Um, I I am so excited for this. Are you guys ready? Right, we are ready. Yep. Okay. Okay. I guess the first question here is, and kind of get started is, let's hear the story of the Thompsons. You guys are legends in the dairy goat industry. I will say that. Um, everybody knows your names as either judges or uh, they see the Caracol or legendary Toggenberg herd or um, so tell us, how did you all get started? Well, I, I've been given uh, this question to start with since it was my idea way back. Um, when I was in college, I volunteered at the Kalamazoo Nature Center. I went to Kalamazoo College in Kalamazoo, Michigan, and there was a little black 
kid that they had there for a while in a little pen. And I just thought it was just a really neat animal and just kind of that filed away thinking, oh, goats are really neat. Well, then we got married uh, right after graduation and uh, we were uh, kind of part of that back to the land movement where, you know, want to raise your own food and and get off the grid, uh, that type of a thing. And, and so we thought goats would be a part of that. And uh, there was a, we were living uh, near Zimmerman, Minnesota at the time. Central. Central, Central Minnesota. And there was an ad in the paper. And so we went out and we bought eight goats. <laughs> they were $25 a piece, the milkers. Um, and they were actually pretty good functional grades, good milk animals. And uh, brought them home. I got a book from the library called Starting Right with Milk Goats by Helen Walsh. And we kind of followed everything in that book. We were talking today about how did we, how did we learn about ADGA? And we, we can't remember. <laughs> we, but we joined pretty quickly. And I'm, I'm thinking somewhere along the line, we saw a Dairy Goat Journal and I can't remember who would have given it to us or how we got it. But I think that there was an ad in there for ADGA and we just joined, uh, uh, but we can't remember the kind of the detailed history of, of that. But we've been members since virtually <laughs> since 1970, and uh, and then we we wanted to have a uh, some purebreds. And and again, I I'm not exactly sure why we thought that that was important, but it was to us. And we went down to Merle Gruber uh, in Iowa, who was kind of a famous goat jockey at the time, uh, and all kinds of um, breeds and he had bought a lot of spotlight sale animals and we bought uh in 1971 from him uh a doe that had been in the 1970 spotlight sale uh alderwood champagne and and then we bought a buck kid from him who was out of a laurel acres doe the buck kid was fifty dollars we paid 150 dollars for that doe which was exactly the same price that she was in the spotlight sale in 1970 oh my gosh yeah yeah yeah. And she was a really good milker. She did not have a real well-attached udder, but she was the beginning of our CH line, which we had for a very long time. And actually your dad, Cameron, bought a doe from that line yep. uh, from us, China. Yep. And we now have reestablished that line with um, uh, the doe Zen exercise that we got from Craig um, here a few years back. She was out of a Kickapoo Valley X-angle. X-angle. Yeah, X-angle. Yep. Yep. And, and when you look at the her, at her breeding, it goes back to Caracal Chime. Um, so we just think that's kind of, I mean, that wasn't why we bought her at the time, but it it is, it does bring that first line back to us. And now I think I'm wandering, so I. <laughs> oh, no, I love that. I think no, that I is so too. cool. Yeah. <laughs> um, so you guys have lived in central Minnesota, and then at one point, because I remember my dad said he, my dad always said, oh, you guys lived in like deep north Minnesota, and now you've moved to southern Minnesota. Is that correct? Well, but in between, in 1972, I think it was, so one, 71, end of 71, we moved to Pennsylvania, and okay. we lived there for four years. Oh, and, wow. And that, we feel, really jump-started our dairy goat um, knowledge and uh, kind of networking, because 
the, the, at that time, the folks in the East were re- re- really kind of ahead of where we were anyway in the Midwest. And they had a lot of established shows. Um, Gail Putcher was out there who had Gaymore Herd of, and she had some really nice Alpines as well as uh, the Stonebacks with the Amer Herd and the Griners who are still at it. Um, they had nice Sonnens and La Manchas at the time. So we, we started going to shows. Our first show was at Gaithersburg, Maryland. Um, and, uh, and, and we met a lot of, a lot of these, these really pioneers in the goat world. And, and then I went to nursing school out there. We decided the, the East coast was not a place where we wanted to, um, have our forever home and we wanted to get back to the Midwest. So we moved back in 1975. Oh, wow. Yeah. And that's when we, that's when we moved to uh, Northern Minnesota. Yeah. And we always said uh, later on, we said that uh, we overshot because we live so far north, there was nobody else around. Right. <laughs> but we overshot. Yeah. But the land was cheap. We'll say that. Yeah. 80 acres for $12,000. Oh my gosh. How awesome was that? Yeah. Well, we thought it at the time, but later on, we kind of wondered about it. <laughs> so how many goats did you move with you back from Pennsylvania then? Uh, probably about, was it eight or so? About eight. And mm-hmm. uh, these are all hauled with all of our dogs, cats, yeah, whatever. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And Doc, we brought some ducks back. Quick <laughs> road trip. Yeah. And, and we didn't have a place to live in. I mean, when, <laughs> when we moved up there, we had a barn. And... Uh, we, we slept in the barn for the weekend. Then we went out and bought a house trailer and brought it in. Yeah. yeah. Well, you have to have priorities. I mean, yeah. the animals have to have a place to stay, right? Eventually we built a log house, but uh, it was, it, it worked out. A lot of mosquito bites that first weekend. <laughs> oh goodness. I can imagine that. So then at that time, then did you work to kind of find a new, Aga show group up there in Minnesota because um, the show bug kind of bit you to to stay in with that? Well, back in 1970, before we moved, uh, we we met with a small group of uh, dairy goat breeders. Mitchell Cole was the guy who uh, kind of initiated this meeting. Uh, we went to this, uh, this get-together to kind of put together a, a dairy goat association for Minnesota. And that's where we met Vince and Christine Miewski. Uh But the next year, of course, we moved away for about four years. But we kind of kept up with that group, and uh, so it was it was in the beginnings of a, a state dairy goat association at that time. Right, and then when we came back in '75, they put on their first dairy goat show, and actually, that was the spring Doug got his license down in uh, Iowa, along with Sam Whiteside and Jeff Klein. And he was their judge then for the very first MDGA state show, um, which was held at Washington County Fairgrounds. Apparently they were waiting for me to return. (laughs) (laughs) Well, that's a perfect transition into talking about the ADGA world, because I know that you guys have been very active in ADGA, whether it's planning shows or working on the convention level, or you've chaired certain committees there. Um, what made you as, I mean, I guess first I'll talk about, I'll talk Doug and Mary here, and then I'll ask Anna and Emily the same thing. What made you want to get involved in ADGA to begin with? That's a good question. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. 
<laughs> we were kind of, we, you know, we were, somehow we became friends with the Considines. Uh, I, I can't remember exactly. We just became friends with Daniel. I think it kind of actually started when we were in Pennsylvania. There were so many breeders there that were involved with uh, Adga. And uh, so in talking with them, uh, trying to decide what to do about uh, getting a judging license. I, I Actually, my first attempt at a, a judging license was in New York in 1974. At Ithaca. I didn't quite make it, but uh, I was encouraged to try again. So when I had the chance back in uh, in Minnesota and uh, uh, a training conference in Iowa, uh, I got involved there and, and did get my license. And I actually judged my first show that year. So it was uh, it was kind of that that got us into it. And then it just went on from there. Oh, yeah. And then within a few years, uh, it was in the 70s, um, that being a, so acquainted with Daniel, Daniel got Doug involved with um, – well, the, the first classification committee, I think Doug was the chairman of it, right? Well, actually, no, it went, the classification actually went back farther than that. But by 1980, I was asked to uh, take part in, in that and be chair of that committee. So that kind of got me going with uh, a lot of the old-time breeders that uh, we think of old-time today. But uh, <coughs> the Hortons, uh, the Nixons, Proctors. Those people were involved in the Considines, of course, at that time. Those are a lot of, of um, pioneer names for sure that really set the course for ADGA to be the forward-thinking organization that it has become. Yeah, absolutely. The, the, those people uh, gave up a lot uh, to build that organization, and uh, it really was a pleasure to work with many of them. So let, let's talk about that original classification because that was the basis for the current linear system we have now. Um, what well, I guess what was, if you were quickly to talk about it here, what was the main difference? Well, uh, the classification system actually is it's kind of interesting because uh, though we started out as the classification committee and the classification program, uh, Eventually, by 86, 87, we were moving into a linear program, kind of following the dairy cattle people. And uh, But as, as you look back now at the dairy cattle programs, they've gone back to the name of classification. Um, classification is a system that uh, basically looks at, looked at all of the parts of a dairy goat, gave each one a score, but not a score that indicated uh, maybe indicated which uh, which parts were better or gave it a, a, a numerical score that was either good or or fair or farther down the line. Uh, linear actually described those traits that we felt we should concentrate on and uh, measure and actually measure those traits, uh, put it on a, a scale that gave it a better. Uh, description and definition, uh, something that you could use to uh, grade up or, or change the direction of your, uh, of your breeding. For classification, we did have a number of sessions. We always had an annual session of uh, classifiers, and there weren't very many at that time. Uh, 
and there still aren't very many linear appraisals. <laughs> appraisers, but, no, uh, not at all. Uh, it's never enough. But these were those same people, the Sheila Nixon, Ray Horton, Ray Vieira, Sally, uh, Sally Callahan. Those people were the ones that were so involved in that and really wanting to learn more about goats as much as they knew already. They wanted to learn more. They wanted to move forward and uh, saw the value of a classification program that actually put numbers on animals rather than just place them in a lineup uh, as you do in a show. So it was every year that we would have a refresher session somewhere in the country uh, to get all those people together to try to bring them into uh, uh, into a, a uniform view of what the dairy goat should look like and uh, how each of these traits uh, could be analyzed. So over the years, as you saw ADGA kind of grow and evolve and new people and new breeds and so forth came in, um, along with that then came um, – new people in your family to involve with dairy goats too. So talk a little bit about um, raising, raising your kids with kids <laughs> with dairy goats and um, kind of how that, how that evolved for you as well. Well, they, they just were always a, very much a part of whether helping milk and take care of the, the herd twice a day. They do that before they go to school in the morning and and then, and then whenever we, we, we went to practically all the conventions because we would um, be involved with putting the TCs on. And it, as soon as they could practically hang on to a goat, you always need handlers and TCs. So they were <laughs> handlers, probably not the best handlers, but they were handlers. But then they, they were just always a part of, um, I mean, that was just, it became really part of their lives day, day to day. And then the big things like national shows and conventions too. So probably Cameron, I, I would think you would relate to to that at growing up with it. Like all your family vacations become goat shows <laughs> or <laughs> I have been, I always talk to my husband and I've been to so many more states than he has. But that's just because the national show or convention was in a different state every year. And so that's why, <laughs> or we would accompany yeah. My dad had a show and, you know, we all we got to go to Disney World once because my dad got our family got bumped after a goat show. And so we got four tickets, you know, <laughs> <laughs> everything related to everything was related to traveling and goats and showing and yeah. um, did it, enjoyed it, doing it as a family. Right. So. I think Anna was probably the first that got involved with committee work. I can't remember how you, you you've been involved with committee work a long time. Yeah, no, I, I, I remember I, one of my first committees was the publicity and promotions committee, which, um, I chaired that for a few years, um, and enjoyed kind of doing that. Um, and then just from there, um, gotten more involved in kind of in the, after 2000, we, we kind of had a little bit of a lull, um, and this is jumping ahead to one of the questions, but well, when Emily and I were in college with, the uh, with national going to national shows, um, and then back in, in 2006, which was about a few years after I graduated from college, we started going to the national show more kind of routinely again. And then that kind of sparked my interest in getting on the national show committee. I was on that committee for a few years. Um, my mom, mom's been on spotlight sale committee um, in prior years, Colorama committee. Um, 
and and then and then yeah the one thing that yeah, yeah, talked a lot about the linear appraisal committee but in 1986 you were asked to he was asked to um chair the judges training conference by, by daniel by by daniel because daniel considine you know was president of agda for so many years and so <laughs> i suppose that friendship probably helped um dad some friendship <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, to have it be a, in, prominent in his committee work. But uh, he, Dad, I don't know if you want to say more about this, but you presented a whole new way of of uh, organizing a training conference. And I don't know if you want to talk about that at all. But the way training conferences used to be, as, as intense and as, as hard as they are now, they used to be much harder prior to your chairmanship of that committee. Correct? Yeah, you want to say what that change was? Well, uh Basically, the training conference uh, pre-me was uh, you would go in, evaluate the goats. Everybody was there. The goats were in a lineup. There'd be four goats there for the class for uh, for uh, giving reasons. Uh, everybody would look at these goats for 10 or 15 minutes. Then they'd all leave, and they'd have to come back one by one. Sometimes you'd have to wait a couple of hours before you came back and gave reasons on that class. Uh, there was no actual placing of the class. You just looked at the goats, placed them when you came back into the lineup. And uh, so the, the, the thought was, why not make this a little bit more like a show where you actually have your opportunity to go evaluate the goats on your own, place them, formulate the reasons in your mind, and then give your presentation after after you've had sufficient time, maybe 10 or 15 minutes again, but just simply on your own to evaluate that class and give reasons on the goats. It just seemed more realistic to me. So a little was, more humane. Yeah. I, we only thought it was, but we still get lots of complaints. Yeah. That's for sure. <laughs> <laughs> it's, it's a very difficult thing. And it always surprised me many times people that uh, were experienced, uh, public speakers, uh, people who were attorneys that tried to get their license and just it, 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 some for some reason was very difficult for them. It's a pressure situation. I always recognize that. So we always tried to, to tamp that down a little bit and make things a little more realistic for people. Right. And so you chaired that committee until the early 90s, I think. I well, think the long, 12 years. The actually, longest of anybody, I think. Until 1998. Uh, so it was 12 years and uh, just had great experiences traveling across the country. I think I was uh, involved with at least 30 uh, training conferences. So it was, it was quite a bit of work, but uh, I always enjoyed uh, seeing where people were as uh, new judges or uh, continuing judges and uh, just always enjoyed trying to help them become new judges. Doug, something I you were the chairman of the first training conference that I went through, and that was in '87. One of the things that I remember coming out of that, um, just remembering, was how encouraging you you were for everybody. Whether it was somebody who was just heartbroken that they didn't even get a chance to give reasons because they didn't pass the written exam, or um, you know, somebody who was biting their fingernails off because they were so nervous. You were always just such a calming, a calming presence on that committee. And I, I re just really appreciated that. Well, well, thank you. <laughs> <laughs> I wish everybody felt that way. 
think there's anything you do other than provide value for everybody before they take, yeah. you know, before they go up there. Cause I mean, there's a lot at stake and, and you want to do a good job. And so I, you know, I, I definitely think that the changes that have been made over the years have continued to tweak and make that committee better. And, and I would also imagine Doug, that it was um, quite heartening for you seeing your daughters take over that the helmship of the training conference. Oh, yes. That's uh, very gratifying to see that happen. Yeah. Yeah. And yeah, Emlyn, I've enjoyed it. Yeah. I think it's, a, I think it's really a committee uh, that really deserves to have two people. And, and it's, it's a lot of work. <laughs> like it's being at a training conference is one thing, but just, you know, um, there's a lot of other committee work in terms of if it's, I can't even think of something, um, you know, revising pre-TC slides right. and getting reminder letters formulated for pre-TC instructors or looking at guidebook language and saying, this is not real clear. clear. We need this to be different. Now let's all talk, you know, have 12 people talk about how to structure one sentence. <laughs> that can be a process. And um, so there's a lot of work involved and there's, and I think to do the work justice, it's really nice to have another person there to bounce ideas off of. And, and we just want to make, I think there's still lots of ideas that we have to try to make the committee and the um, training process better. You know, we just recently changed the name, for example, a couple of years ago, because we wanted it to be more reflective of what, what it is. It's not just judges training, but it's training and licensing and assessment. Um, and, um, and so just wanting to, wanting to just really, um, have people be our role is we want we would love to see everybody pass the test we know not everybody will pass the test but our job is to really make the tools available and be available ourselves and be available as a committee to um, provide those resources so people can have uh, the best shot they can have to to become a judge and so you know that's our our goal is to this year one thing is we just want to improve some of those training resources and update them really. Well, the, the one thing now that sorry is chairing now for the, that was asked us just this past year is that mom and dad, dad is the primary chair, but mom and dad are both on now the hist the history committee for AGA. And so their new, the latest project is to collect oral histories um, with AGA veterans, the veterans of the industry. So that's, right. that's We're, really exciting. Um, we're, we're just, just started. I went down and did Marge last week to see how it would work. <laughs> and uh, it was, it was fun. It was really, I mean, it's just like this talking back and forth. And uh, one of the, actually one of Laura, one of the committee members said, we really need to get Laura Warren on this uh, committee because she's such a great interviewer. So that would be so much fun. Yeah. Yeah. That, wow. That'd be exciting. And I just, I, I'd like a lot of people, I mean, I don't know if you've heard StoryCorps on, on uh, National Public Radio, but it's kind of like everybody has a story. Um, so I, I, while we want to do the pioneers and we want to get some of these folks, you know, that are elderly, so while they're still around, I, I think everybody's probably got a great goat keeping story to, to share. And then, then we have to figure out how to catalog them and how to, you know, where, where we're going to get them stored. But we're, we're going to get started on it. And uh, it's, it's, I think it's really kind of fun um, as, as we do this. So. Right. 
that's one thing that I've loved about Goat Gab is getting people's stories and finding out more about this amazing industry that we have. And it seems like there's been so much focus on so many negative things in this world, whether it's COVID or just so many things that people can get all up in arms negative about. But the fact of the matter is dairy goat people are really cool. And we are blessed to have so many amazing people to learn from. And as you said, everybody has a story. So uh, I I think about like, wouldn't it be just so neat if you could go up on the cloud and dial up uh, Helen Hunt or uh, Mrs. Carl Sandberg, you know, and oh yeah, Hardfelt, and you know, and, and ask them how how did you get started in goats? You know, <laughs> what were your goals when you started? You know, um, I just think that would be so. So we want to try to get those that are maybe not as long around as as others <laughs> to start with, but but I think it's a start, and I I hope we can get some done this year. That's very exciting. Yeah. Yeah. Switching, I want to switch gears here uh, away from ADGA and talking about your guys' herd now, the, the the herd that you guys raise. Um, two different herd names. You've got Purebred Alpine, so you already have Laura and I's heart, um, but you also have Purebred Toggenbergs as well there. Um, so I guess I'll start on the Alpine side here. Why Alpines for so long? And how did you stay focused in on the Alpines for so long? in the world of all the distractions we have. Well, I'll start that again because it was my idea. And I um, I just, I like the, you know, probably like a lot of Alpine breeders to start with, they come in different colors and I liked that. <laughs> and they have upright ears and to me, goats should have upright ears. Um, so that was you know, like 50 some years ago, the reasoning. And we've, they've just, they've been a challenge. You know, I, I mean, we kind of went farther, faster with the togs, but um the Alpines have been just a real challenge and they, they a rewarding know, challenge, a rewarding yeah. challenge. Right. Right. And we, um, we, we, we just really like them. We yeah. did, we did have Simons for a few years, um, way back, but you had Americans. Oh yeah. That's another question down here, but I could bring it up now. Cause you wanted to know yeah. about, um, the, the, we, we actually started with Americans. I mean, we started with grades, these, these goats that we you know bought for 25 bucks and we bred them uh, uh, Alpine, and we bred up to Americans. And our first permanent champion was Caracol I Jazzy, was her name. And then we had a few others, and we had a J line and a B line. And then we, but we had our CH line of the purebreds. And eventually, our and and we had an A line. Our purebreds were better than our Americans. So as we just kind of slowly, you know, would keep some goats and sell some goats, the Americans got sold off just because of, at that time. Our purebreds were better, and then we it was like, well, so and we have we had a we had another American buck a few years ago that we probably brought, like eight years ago brought in from from Redwood Hills, and uh, we had a few daughters, but they they weren't as good as the our A line that we had, and so we they just left again. So yeah. we we have we're not you know totally against Americans, but our purebreds are they've risen to the top <laughs> for us. Yeah, and I think part of it is like um, I. Th- in the Midwest in particular, we have a lot of purebred herds. You know, we're, we're only a couple hours from Craig's. We use a lot of Craig's genetics. Um, we're pretty close to you guys, and we've used your genetics. And, Laura, we're not too far from you guys and Adamson's and Windrush. You know, there's just a lot of purebred alpines in the Midwest. Plus, there's a lot of collected bucks still that I think can be used um, uh 
in smart ways um, that maybe are 20 years old. I think two years ago, I had I had a doling out of Super Saga from who was born in like 2006, uh, something out of a Sunshine Buck. I was collected in 99 and something from 94 out of a Willow Run Buck. So you can still use a lot of purebred genetics that work well today if you're if you're going to using them correctly. And um, so it, it there also just has and I don't really like outcrosses. I just don't for in from what I've seen, they don't work as well for us than than doing some line breeding. And so, um, you know, the one lot, the one American um, that we used recently that uh, an American buck uh, handyman was out of a purebred buck. And so and actually it's not that much of an outcross. And I just thought he was the best buck for this doe. So I'm excited. She's bred. I ultrasounded her last night and I'm excited that she'd be kidding in July, but I am excited to see how, how she turns out. But, um, I just, I think I, like I said, I, I like how the purebreds work. I kind of know them the best and I know those lines and you can really still, there's, there are a lot of breeding options, um, really strong breeding options, um, close by both naturally and still via AI as well. So it's, it's not hard to stay purebred and I think they're just as competitive and um, yeah. So I just, I just like them and I like my Alpines, <laughs> even though they can have the attitudes. We all know. <laughs> I feel like you guys definitely have, have shown that the purebred Alpines can be just as competitive as American Alpines can. Um, I don't know that it seems to me just, in, in watching things that it almost seems kind of cyclical at sometimes. And, you know, cer- certainly there are some years where uh, you don't see any purebred Alpines that are in the top placings at nationals. And then we'll go through some years where there's a whole uh, bunch of them that are, have you kind of noticed that or do you have any theories on that? No, I've seen, no. And I think it's, it's sometimes it's tied to geography. It's tied to geography too. Yeah. I was going to say, um, you know, last year I was in, we had a lot of purebred herds there, but I think over half the class winners were purebreds. Um, I remember making a post on Alpines International about that. Um, Premier Sire was a purebred, National Champion was a purebred. Um, you, you won a class, Laura, with your doling that was a purebred. And so um, uh, I, I think, so ge- geography for sure. But, but the Americans were represented. Yeah, and Americans were very strongly represented as well. And, and I, don't, I don't want it to be like a purebred versus American because I think they're absolutely beautiful American animals. And I only, like, I just really like line breeding. And so um, if I don't have a lot of Americans in my animals, um, breeding to total outcrosses hasn't worked as well. And I'll say that even for some purebreds that I've used, using an outcross buck that's a purebred doesn't work as well, um, I find than um, something that is more line bred. And so, um, so yeah, that's why we kind of stay that way. Right. And, and again, if you go out to the West Coast, by contrast, you know, when the national show was in Redmond in 2019, you know, there were very few purebred does shown. And that's just, again, that has to do with, with geography, right? And it kind of, it, that geography and, and the way in which genetics, if, if you know, it, what to me, it kind of goes all the way back probably to the mid 80s when Donald Smith of Sodium Oaks had all that success in California. Well, and then when when Donald Smith had all that success, you had so many herds then wanting to incorporate those genetics into their herd. And then, you know, the way our herd books operate, right? Once you go American, you can't go back right to purebred. And so, you know, that may be a 
you know, that's, that's just kind of the way our, that's the way our registry works. And so again, that is, again, it is very, I think, again, very tied to geography, where, where purebreds dominate, where Americans uh, dominate, clearly. So I, I want to move on from the Alpines, because I know Laura and I could talk Alpines all day, every day. (laughs) And Um, that's wrong? There's something wrong with that? <laughs> it's for the listeners, but I want. Oh, to, okay. We have to pay. We, the listeners want this next question. I know because I want to hear about the Toggenbergs, and I know Anna is probably sitting on the edge of her seat to talk about oh, okay. some Toggenbergs here. Um, but legendary Toggenbergs. The first question, and this probably comes from eight-year-old Cameron's brain here, but why was there a herd name change? Well, you know, it was kind of, um, it's actually my, my mom's idea too, but, and she'll, I mean, she'd be the first, she, before the, the, the that, you know, I think you had, had said you had seen a, a sign that you passed. I was driving down the road and there was this legendary log homes and I, and it was spelled like legendary should be spelled, but I saw it and I thought, oh, what a great herd name. And especially if you just put an I in there <laughs> and we had already changed our herd name once. We started out as Snowtrap for just a few years, and then we became Caracal. And I, you know, you can't just be changing your herd name all the time if people, you know, if you want people to know who you are. And I think that's when Anna was getting her togs, I believe. And so yeah, I think I was like nine years yeah, old. Yeah, suggested so. that. Hey, isn't this a great herd? Right, and of course, when you know, when you're nine, your mom says you should do this. You know, you're much more like likely to say okay. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, so that's just kind of the story there, and and it was no, there's no, there's no real calculation behind it, but we just kind of thought, you know, with the with the new breed that we ought to have a new herd name. So yeah, gotcha. and you've done, you've ran both ways. You've run the purebred tog side, and you are probably, in my mind, one of the upper echelons of, of purebred tog breeders currently in the u.s right now but you've also played on the american side how have you know making sure that both sides of the house kind of work there in such a small herd yeah so i i had a line one line that i kind of americanized and uh, that line actually is is no more unfortunately <laughs> but uh so the herd is now is now entirely purebred but you know, I again, I I just felt at that time there was a buck. I remember a, a tog buck. I in the mid '90s that I just really wanted to lease, and that tog buck uh, was owned by uh, just a, a little 4 H'er in in in, Minis- in Minnesota. But the buck had a combination of um, sunshine and sun kissed genetics, and so um, I just really liked the dam. The dam had done well at our, our state fair and I really wanted to use her son. And I just thought, um, I, and when I started off with my togs, I had really good mammary systems that I had, um, purchased, uh, these does from the cobbler's knob herd, uh, which was an old time herd up in kind of Northern Wisconsin, Wisconsin, a lot of sunshine, stuff. a lot of sunshine genetics there, but they were a shorter cobbier style of Toggenberg, which, you know, that is kind of the way togs kind of prime really did used to be was kind of shorter and cobbier. And this doe, um, that was the combination of kind of the sunshine and sun kiss genetics just had this taller, more angular frame. And so that was kind of that one fateful decision that led to my Americanization of my W, my W line is what I call it. Um, and so I, that line persisted until um, my, one of my, my last kind of 
grand old W. Doe's kind of, she, she died unexpectedly while kidding. And so when she died, um, it kind of, that was kind of the end of the, of that line, unfortunately. Right, but the W line really came from purebreds. From right, Julie, right. From yeah, the, the W line originated with the Dairy Delight herd of Doe Kid that, um, that I had purchased from, um, uh, from Julie, Julie, uh, we've the hand Mathis. Uh, so yeah. And, and that buck that we, that Anna leased ended up breaking her wrist. Yeah. <laughs> right. He was Rambo. He was a mean buck, yeah. but I got, I got a really nice doe out of that breeding. <laughs> out of so, yeah. so why Toggenbergs as a second breed? Well, again, this is a, you can blame Marge Kitchen, um, Marge, Marge and Earl Kitchen at that. They, they were just kind of put the bug in my ear. I mean, I was, you know, I was a nine-year-old kid. I was pretty impressionable and uh, I'd helped them show as a little kid, you know, when I was small, they, I helped, had helped them show some of their Toggenbergs at some little club shows. And then um, Marge gave me this Toggenberg then when I was when I was nine years old and so um I was hooked from that point on and uh and and then my mom and dad really obviously supported me and um we had um a good family friend of ours like he's kind of a Bob Mueller I don't know if you all know him he was the ex-husband he's the ex-husband of Joanne Mueller of Mellow Meadows but Bob was quite the goat jockey um, in his day, and he had acquired two does from the Cobbler's Knob herd, and then um, we bought those does, and then uh, kind of acquired a, our, a, a spotlight buck in 1991, um, a Nimrodell buck, who also happened to be the full brother to the 1990 um, national champion, and so... Um, uh, and so that Nimrodell buck, I don't have any direct descendants anymore from that buck, but I do all my does now go back to him somewhere in their pedigree. Uh, and he was a son of the great Chevis Regal, Dionysius um, uh, Cece's Chevis Regal. Um, and he is kind of a, he's not, I've never had an outright Chevis Regal daughter or um, daughter in my herd, but I, I, he's kind of, you might say he was sort of a, a foundational buck in my breeding program in the way that I kind of loop in um, Chevis Regal descendants into my, into my breeding program when I can. So, yeah. Okay. Okay. So I, I, this question I've been dying to ask here, thus this week on Facebook, I saw somebody was getting out of goats and they said something like, well, I never accomplished my goal of breeding a national champion, but I had a lot of high success goats. You guys, both in the Caracol herd and and recently here in Alpines, and, and in the last five what five six years in Toggenbergs now, you guys have bred and owned a national champion. You've kind of checked that box off. Where does a herd basically go from there? I mean, what's what goals do you set next? We're done. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> You know what, Anna, Anna, after Akabono won, Anna said to me, I'm so glad this happened before you died, Mom. <laughs> oh, my gosh. My kids would say something like that. That's just a daughter thing. <laughs> well, I mean, I think I, and so it was, it was, uh, I was, it was very unexpected that Akabono won. I knew, I know she's a nice goat. And I know last year, right after she kitted, I thought, Every day I thought, if you could just look like you do today at nationals, that would be great. But we all know you're going to crash. You're going to crash or something. Something's going to happen. You're going to you know, not want to eat at the show and not make, you know, everybody goes through that. It takes a lot to look 
good on the day that you're supposed to look good. And so it was very unexpected to win um, that. And it was wonderful, but also wonderful. And so um, and, and I felt a little bit different with Rubiat because Rubiat had just won so much at state fair and like it was, she's won her class at nationals before. And so it, it was not as shocking, I guess, to me, but I did last fall go through a little bit of a, uh, lack of motivation because I thought like, I don't know how to breed, a, a, like how to do that again. And it, at, uh, I don't know that I can, but um, that's okay because I'm glad that we won once and it would be great if we can win again. But I guess I just, you know, I, that doesn't deter from the fact that I, that we all still really want to breed really consistent, high quality, high, you know, strong producing animals that, you know, really, we're that we're really proud of and that we, that people want to purchase from us and that do well for them in their own herds. Um, and I want to, still be able to go out in the barn and see that my does are looking like they are, you know, conforming to the scorecard and, and last really a long time. And so, you know, there's still, there's still goals, you know, to do well at shows. And again, but I just really want to, um, I think we really want to breed consistent, um, animals and still have herds that we're proud of. And so I don't know that I have like now this single goal that, that um, I want to achieve, but just in general, we, we want to have herd that we're really proud of. And, and I think the day to day of year to year of, you know, being inspired or kind of being challenged by picking the right breeding for the right goat and seeing if this works and that works still makes it really fun. Um, and giving, seeing that goat that was maybe kind of a, a yearling that just needed that extra year. And then they really look like that the next year is really rewarding too. Um, and so I, you know, I think that still keeps you, keeps you going um, through. And then it's just the goat community in general. I mean, if, if you don't do it, then you kind of lose that goat community potentially as well. And so um, that's kind of, I guess, where we go from here is that we're still just going to enjoy doing it. Gotcha. So this no. past year, um, you, your family received what I think is like a really amazing honor from the Minnesota Livestock Breeders. You guys want to talk about that a little bit and what led up to it and maybe what that means to you? Well, I'll start with that because um, several years ago, um, I well, for many years I have been on the Minnesota Dairy Goat Association board and uh, it must have been seven years, seven or eight years ago, we were meeting at uh, St. Paul campus at University of Minnesota and at lunchtime, we were kind of, I was wandering around the halls and I came into this big kind of sunlit room that was called the uh, Livestock Hall of Fame. I'd never heard of it. And I was looking at all of these plaques and they were beef and there were Holsteins and there were some hogs and sheep, but there wasn't a single dairy goat on there. And I thought, this, this needs to change. <laughs> and I went back uh, after lunch to our board meeting. I said, we need to nominate the Mayovskis to this because they deserve to, to be on this. And, uh, and so we did, we nominated them and they were, um, they were inducted uh, like a year or two later and in, into that. And that was when I first heard about it. Um, and, and then um, a couple of years ago, uh, the Mayovskis, um, asked if they could in, induct us and uh, nominate, you. You have to nom nominate, nominate, right. Nominate yeah. Not induct, selected. but it right to nominate. And, and they did. And, uh, 
evidently there is some, you know, like, oh, it's time that we have some cheap people in there. And there's, uh, <laughs> they actually, they nominated, our three were inducted this time. There was a, a Holstein breeder and a Simmental breeder and us. So there were three families that were actually inducted. Um, and it, it, we, you know, it was a lot of, a lot of old white farmers <laughs> were in the room. <laughs> uh, it did feel a little bit like an old boys club, <laughs> but but it was an honor to represent the dairy goat industry, and and uh, and it was really fun to have our daughters there. And Mayovskis were there; their children were there. Dan Considine was there, um, and it it was um, it, you know it's it's kind of I guess in the livestock world that's it's not a huge bubble to be uh, in, but it was it was nice. It's nice to be recognized. It, just, it really was. I love having dairy goats included in, I mean, in something like that. You know, um, that's I think that's just really awesome. So, congratulations to you guys. Yes. Yeah. Huge honor there. But I want to talk about something that has kind of been on my brain and probably been on a lot of kids that are either aging out of 4-H or FFA or um, maybe they're in college right now. And I wanted to kind of spend some time talking about it is managing the goats from afar, because this to me is one of the hardest challenges. And, and Laura, I know your daughters um, have, you know, struggled with this as well. So I know it's something that's, that's quite common here. Um, I guess the first current thing is, I guess, how did you, Emily and Anna do that while you guys were in college? Uh, says Emily. So I think, you know, we came home a lot on the weekends and um, would help. Not, uh, not as like during this, I think our parents definitely kind of kept, kept the train all moving um, during college because I don't, and I don't think they ever put pressure on us to be like, well, you need to come home and do all of this. Um, You know, we were really encouraged to pursue our education and, and, pursue internships or anything like that, which I think is really important for kids to do. Um, and, and I think if they had decided that the goats needed to go, you know, I think we would have totally understood that as well, but, um, they enjoy them as well. And so, you know, we would come back during college in particular, um, we would come back when we could, I would usually come back in the summers and be there all summer. Um, and I think Anna, Benefited from that a little bit because yeah. uh, she had a sister at home doing chores. So yeah. She maybe I mean, got I, to go live in Texas for 10 years. I and- did. I did. I got, I mean, I was, the. Uh, I, I did get to kind of have a little more uh, distance from the goats, from the farm. Um, and I am uh, I'm, I'm really grateful to, to Emily and to my, my parents for kind of keeping, keeping the goats alive. And there was a period, I mean, I'm going to say a period in my undergraduate years where I kind of, you know, I wanted that, that distance a little bit. I, I, you know, was, I kind of was tired of the goats, honestly, by my senior year of high school and wanted a break. And I started my, I met my now husband in college. And so then I also had to make time for a long distance um, romance, which obviously ended well, <laughs> uh, with my marriage. Um, and then went off to grad school. You for, were you were a judge when you went moved yes, to Texas, so you that's true. That's that's right. So then I I know I never stopped judging, and I got to know a wonder, some wonderful people down in Texas. And um, you guys had Scott Horner on a few weeks ago. Scott, oh, I wanted to just mention was somebody that I 
I did a, a number of uh, work, uh, some different projects with, um, helped him with his, one of his dairy goat field days there at Prairie View and uh, got to, again, got to judge um, lots of club shows all over Texas. Um, but I always, I always had in my mind that Texas was going to be a temporary situation. And in graduate school, I actually researched for my dissertation work, um, agriculture, kind of agriculture and media and representation of agriculture in media and film. And um, a lot of that research kind of led me back to my, my, my roots and back to the goats. And so when it finally came time to get a job uh, for, out of grad, graduate school, I was very fortunate to find uh, a position, a teaching position in Wisconsin. And so I do live uh, about two and a half hours. And Emily only lives an hour from the farm. Um, but, you know, again, we're lucky that both of us live within easy driving distance and are able to, to be back home as much as we can be. Um, I'm, a, I'm always busy in the spring. You know, the spring semester is a busy time for teaching. Obviously, that coincides with kidding, you know, and that can be a challenge. But then my semester is over by the middle of May. And so then I'm able to be here for longer stretches in the summer. And, uh, you know, now that we're parents, Emily and I, that's been another layer of kind of balance too, right? Because we have to obviously make sure our kids go to school and can't just come to the farm, right? Um, but you know, you know that you know just for for those kid those chi- those ki- children who are graduating and um, trying to balance um, goats and and you know parental uh, concerns about their herds of goats you know, it does really help if your, if your parents are supportive and if you don't have a supportive parent, that is, that can be tricky. Right. Um, and you may have to sell down or sell out for a little while, but here's a piece of advice for all of those, those kids. There's always somebody out there that's going to want to sell you a goat. Right. <laughs> and so there's always, and goats, goats do reproduce quickly. And, um, you know, it can be a, hard, really emotionally heart-wrenching to maybe sell down a herd or sell a herd that you've worked and put years into. But there's always um, ways to build back, um, build back your herd too. And, uh, and, and of course, there, you know, the dairy goat community is such a wonderful community that we all want, ultimately, I think, people to succeed. Uh, so, yeah. And, and I would say as somebody who did sell out for a while, um, you're going to bring forward those lessons that you learned as a youth and as a young adult with your herd into making something probably even better. You know, you, you can start out maybe avoiding some of the pitfalls that, that you had as a youth and, and you know what you're looking for and you know what animals you're looking for. And, and it's not like you're going to lose something other than probably the, uh, the personal connection that you had with certain bloodlines that you might not be able to get back exactly what you had, but you definitely can come back. Yeah. And with things like AI, you can bring back your own genetics, you know, or if you can place some of your animals in a herd, then you can, you know, maybe get, you know, like we have that, we bought that doe exercise who goes back to yeah. our old lines. Um, and we still have um, two X does in our barn. And so um, there's ways to still incorporate some of you, but you know, if it's not worth straining family relationships, if to just make it work or giving up um, really important educational opportunities too, I think. And so I think it is about finding that balance and, and 
seeing how to um, move forward with everybody keeping their sanity. Right. Right. Yeah. So with Emily, Anna being two and a half hours away, Emily being an hour away, how does that communication work between the the two, Anna and Emily and Doug and Mary? Is it text message? Is it a shared calendar? I mean, how do you guys communicate with each yeah. other to make sure everything is kind of coordinated? Yeah. All of the above. Yeah, all of the above. <laughs> I, we text a lot. I mean, we have like, you know, a little group of the four of us and we text a lot. Um and we, you know, Anna and I talk about what weekends we're, we can switch off and be here at. Um, my parents love to travel. And so we make sure that we can be here, particularly if it's a, if it's a really high, like need time. So like, say going to Japan during getting season, <laughs> which my parents did 10 days, like four years ago. Um, well, then I needed to be here for that time. Or, um, or if it's during the height of breeding season, then we're going to really want to be here as well. Or think about if we're not going to AI, then, you know, we do have a wonderful, wonderful chore person named TJ Douglas. She comes and stays at our house and does chores. And so she's, she will get right on that text message as well and say, this goat's in heat. Who do you want me to breed her to? Mm -hmm. And takes a picture of the goat, takes a picture of the buck. And so she's wonderful. And she also has goats herself. So she understands dairy goats and can milk. Um, 14 animals and stuff. So, um, so we have a great chore person and, and just, yeah, we, we text if there's a question, you know, if somebody's sick, usually it's a text from my mom saying, so-and-so is in the corner. What do we do? (laughs) So take a picture. I mean, with cell phones, it really makes it easy to communicate. I mean, talk about every once in a while, Doug goes rogue on something. (laughs) (laughs) But usually, you know, it's just a answers yeah. a text away yeah so. and we try to like you know, all the breeding plans are up on a board and that's the those are the one instances where my dad i'll be like that goat was supposed to get bred to atari you know fuck i had last year too late i try to keep my phone off when i'm in the boat when doug doug when you go rogue do you, do you do it on purpose or are you just trying to prove a point that you're in charge? I'm not saying. <laughs> but even, I mean, even with FaceTime, like there was a late night kidding two weeks ago that, you know, my dad, I felt I was here for six days and that goat did not want to have her babies. Well, I was here apparently and I left and that night she had them at two in the morning, but I stayed up on FaceTime and watched this whole kidding and say, you know, yelling into a camera, I think you should help her now. (laughs) So um, so it's, there's heavy involvement through FaceTime, through texting, a lot of communication. I think we communicate almost everything. Well, she, she watches, I mean, she has the cameras on her phone too, so she can watch the barn. And if we're, we, I, I was watching this go just as she started to push and as she started to push and I yelled to Doug, you got to get up, uh, phone rang. At two in the morning. And Emily me. says, you got to get out to the barn. Yeah. <laughs> so, yeah. That makes it easier. Yeah. Yeah. And in terms of like calendar stuff, yeah. So like my dad, they have a show in a, in a couple weeks that they're driving down to and I will be here. I also have the flexibility that um, mainly due to the pandemic, my 
job is I work for public health department and it's fully remote now. So I can work and be at the farm, which is helpful that I'm not taking all this time off. Um, and I have a very understanding husband who watches the kids if I have to be here a long time or I bring my youngest daughter who's still in daycare just down with me. Um, and so I, I do come down a lot. I would say I was think I was here for 10 days that during the big push of kidding and then another six days during another push of kidding and um, and down just pretty frequently to do um, a lot of the th- a lot of the things. So I would say if there is a gift that came out of the pandemic, it's the fact that there are so many more options for working from home. Yep. Yep. Absolutely. Yeah. And I think, you know, um, and it helped my husband also works completely remote as well. And so we both work out of our home. And so that just eliminates, you know, having one person having to be at work and can't get the kids and like, um, unless there's a meeting or something, you know, it's just, I think constant communication is just necessary. If you have four family members, all adults that are all um, trying to manage a herd together, because I think we all do it together. So I feel like that transitions really well into a question that I had. You have three judges and, and then Mary who, you know, helped raise two of those judges. So she's got a good eye too. Um, do you guys ever butt heads on who stays and who's, who goes? And- oh yes. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah. I mean, we all have, I mean, I think of course, you know, we, we as 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 two current and one former uh, training conference chair here. We also, you know, there is a standard, and we I think we all pretty much adhere to the standard of of what is a good goat and who who are the goats that, you know, that we consider to be the goats that should should stay or go. That being said, sometimes sentimentalism um, gets in the way. Sometimes you know, nostalgia for say that, you know, that, that doe out of that throwback AI breeding that she clearly is saying not a doe that is of the 21st century, right. In her type, but you know, maybe she's got that special little something, right. Those are the kinds of, of um, decisions that we sometimes tend to butt heads on, right. Is, is, you know, kind of whether, you know, the, 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 those animals that, um, might become a sentimental favorite for one reason or another. And yet clearly they might not be the top doe in their age group and they are an easy mark to go. Um, but, you know, I think overall we're not, we don't, generally we see things the yeah, same. This, this year went well. Yeah. The, the, the last <laughs> two years. There's, there's always like, like what Anna says, a sentimental doe that is maybe the last daughter out of a, a favorite and you think, Oh, if she would just, you know, one more year, that rum's going to get better. You know, we need to keep her one more year. And and then it doesn't. And then right. she goes, but I mean, it seems like they're the ones that you, they, you put a little more, there's just a lot of passion involved in keeping them. And then we do have, we do butt heads. We, I mean, we have tears and climbing doors and stuff like that. <laughs> like all families do. so yeah and i think it's just but we also know that uh i'm so i will say i am the harshest of all of the family members and my list is a lot shorter than anybody's which then yeah but but that's because i want it to be doable i want like chores to not be this intense intense um time commitment which they already are and so um 
So that can be where we put butt heads a lot because I do want it to still, you don't want it to just not be fun and it's sometimes not fun and we all know that, but it needs to also still be manageable. Um, and you had asked, there was a question on, you had sent the questions earlier and there was a question about, you know, managing things from afar and keeping that balance and how to, what, you know, maybe call it kind of going back to that whole college thing, but just that, um, that people, you know, we really try to take all of those things that don't need to be done day to day off of our parents' um, table. So like all the hoof trimming, all of the vaccines, barn cleaning um, or the pen cleaning, finding hay, all of the marketing, all of the website stuff. Ann and I do all of that. And so we really try to eliminate at least all of that. So that's not just another added task. And if kids are trying to figure out if they're in college, you know, those are the things that they can still be involved in taking some of those really things that have to get done, but don't have to get done every single day um, to keep things manageable and keep the numbers where you are. Everybody's happy um, to help with some of those, those big tasks like that. So my, this next question is for Doug and Mary here. Um, you know, there might be times in which you guys, cause you are managing the day to day, um, make a decision and the girls may not disagree with how do you, I guess, deal with those consequences. And it might've been something that you might've learned at a younger or, or, you know, previous years, but how did you kind of deal with those there? And I guess the question is who kind of has the final say between you two? Oh, it's not me. (laughs) (laughs) I've learned over the years to just defer (laughs) because I know I'm not going to win anyway. You're a smart man. (laughs) I guess, I guess this barn one goat is pushing now. Okay. I love it. Um, I guess my question is, and maybe it just comes from my own personal experiences and my dad is going to listen back is that, you know, myself or my dad might do something that we might not agree with. And then, or I do something he doesn't agree with or something like something happens there. And I guess, you know, there are quote consequences or maybe stern talking to Does that happen at your guys' place? I don't feel like that happens as much, but that's, only on, I think it's on my side of the things. I think I, I am probably the one that gives stern talking. <laughs> I don't know. I, I, I tend to, I think there's a lot of like, like we had talked about how do we communicate? So like if they're, if it's go to sick or there's something that needs to be addressed, like, um, Doug and I have a master gardener event this Saturday. So who's coming home to do chores. And so, you know, and then Anna and I need to figure that out or, Uh, you know, this goat is sick. So what are we going to do? And so like, I feel like we make decisions pretty collectively um, for things from treatments of a sick goat to covering time off to selling decisions that I don't think we have a lot of like people making decisions without, without checking in on the others. You know, if I, I have been looking, like if I have to find, you know, we need straw. Well, like all I'll, I feel like I can handle that on myself or I can find straw for us. And then I'll text my dad or call my dad and say, Hey, how much straw do we need? I think this guy looks good. Here's this ad. Can you look at it? And then we can decide. Or if it's, Hey, you know, we had to get some hay a few months ago, a couple months ago. And I went up to the guy, to the guy's house, brought home a couple bales, showed my dad the hay, we fed it. And so then, um, 
we made that decision together. So I don't, I feel like we don't make a lot of big decisions independently. Yeah. No, we don't. don't, We we even name our goats together, kind of. (laughs) I maybe we'll name goats on my own, but. That's where the real arguments come. (laughs) (laughs) So it's not just my house. Yeah. Yeah. I I have veto power on me. There are some I just don't like. We did that. You know, I, I come up with another one, but not that one. Yeah. <laughs> my mom also has ultimate veto power on who stays and goes. So I, you know, right. in terms of stuff. Because I'm the one that cries and slams doors. <laughs> <laughs> so all, all of the sales are agreed upon. And sometimes it maybe takes a year to agree upon a sale. But, um, you know, Ann and I don't put goats up for sale without ever talking about it or um, just buy a big new thing. Like last year, the big thing that we bought was a milking machine. And so after how many years we got our first milking machine last year, but we still talked about it for a long time. Yeah. (laughs) And it's, it's, it has made things easier. Yeah. Yeah. Shocker. Probably should have done it 30 years. (laughs) (laughs) Well, after, after milking my small herd um, this week without electricity, I realized um, my hands definitely have gotten weaker because I haven't been milking by hand so much, but I also realized I can still milk them in about the same amount of time. It, you know, when you put all the cleanup and everything into it, but it is easier. It is easier with the machine. So I just like it because I can watch TV while milking then. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, we don't have that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. we don't have that. Nope, nope, nope. Doug, no. Maybe we'll get Doug a Christmas present at his show um, Christmas <laughs> in September uh, of a TV for the yeah. 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 podcast. He always has his headphones in, so he can never hear me. <laughs> Actually, I don't have that turned on. I just have the headphones. <laughs> then people don't bother you, right? Yeah. Right. Yeah. Right. It's a happy life. Uh, yeah. Well, we're waiting for Anna here, I guess. I, I kind of want to – I know I this is kind of my last question here. Well, I have. But... Yeah. I think this goat's kidding. Okay. Yes, Anna's yeah. probably gone for the day. So okay. Emily can okay. – That's uh, fine. Excellent. So um, you've got three generations now, obviously, um, your kids, Anna and Emily's, and then um, Anna and Emily themselves, and then Doug and Mary. I guess um, – Dealing with differences there, I guess, what are you guys doing to not only make sure that you're empowering the next generation, but also guiding them as well? Um, well, I can, like our kids are still pretty young. Mm-hmm. Um, I think uh, Laura and I kind of had talked about this publicly on Facebook that I uh, sold my daughter's goat. <laughs> I didn't sell her, actually. She, she had had a, had a hip injury, and so she went graciously to a wonderful uh, friend who is a veterinarian who now can also um, hopefully address that. Um, pain that she was having. But, um, you know, it's just talking a lot about um, why we have the goat, the girls come, all three girls come here a lot. Um, They have been into the barn and they have seen lots of kiddings this year, which they're getting a little bit more excited about trying to get them a little bit more involved to, to um, maybe show some of their own goats this year or uh, feed the babies and be out there and help with chores. Zoe's Zoe's just turned eight you know, um, there's plenty of times when they're just going to be watching PBS Kids or a Disney movie while we're doing chores, but they're just now getting to the point that they can reach the hay feeders and they can carry out the grain buckets and are getting more involved um, on that day to day 
kind of chore basis. We had a little name to go. When they got to each name, so Zoe got to name her doe kid avocado. Oh, I love it. <laughs> um, so uh, Daisy also likes the alpines, and she um, her goat was Imora. We also sold, but you know, heartless here apparently. <laughs> Um, but she had a, she has two daughters in our herd, Zuna and Zulu. And so, and I think both those does will um, stay as well. And so, um, so getting them to get excited about it because it's kind of their goat and, um, you know, getting them into it just a little bit more, but they love to come out to the barn and having them help and do the things that they can without making it um, not fun. I mean, you want it to still be fun and they love to go out there and play. So, you know, for the, for the little girls, I don't, I'm not putting a ton of pressure on them in particular to be like great showmen or anything. Um, you know, I'd like to them to just see it as an enjoyable experience and, um, and, you know, it's something they get to do with their cousins and uh, grandma and grandpa and, and seeing that it's kind of a family activity, I think is real important. Um, so we might we might see them in showmanship at Harrisburg. <laughs> well, not this year because I'm not going. My um, I'm not going to okay. national this year. My mom is going to fly out and watch. Um, we're um, my husband's birthday is on Alpine Day, and so I'm not going to <laughs> this year. And so, um, and you know, it, it we had already kind of made the decision that we weren't going to drive out. It's just a long drive, right? And expensive, and so. Um, and I had put her name on the ballot. And then um, when Akbono uh, didn't even kid this year, I mean, that was just kind of further decision to, to maybe not go this year. And so, um, so I'll miss going there, but I don't know that they would, I, I don't even know if they want to do, they, I, I think they'll just be handling in like a yearling milker class. I don't even know that they'll be pushed. To, I always, I, maybe you guys can think about yourselves in showmanship as well, but I thought it was really stressful <laughs> as a kid. And so um, I like being a good showman, but showmanship class itself was, was a pretty intense. And I remember uh, at nationals in particular being stressed out. Yes. I remember so, because you were judging. Yeah. Yeah. And it was, uh, I remember I got cut and I was just in tears because it was like my last year. And I think my last year I ended up getting like eighth or second to last year. I got cut because like one goat I brought out with Daniel was limping and I had to show someone else's goat. And I was just like, this isn't fun. <laughs> so, I don't know. But, yeah, maybe I'll push him to do uh, try showmanship if they would like to try it. But, you know, they do like to show a goat. at, So they'll get to show their goats, their own goats, I think is important to let them get to handle. I think something you just said is the key though. Fun. You know, yeah. I, some of my daughters like showmanship and some of them did not. And I probably pushed the ones that did not more than I should have, you know, looking back on it, I'm like, okay, the most important thing is that they had fun and whether showmanship's their bag or not, that's okay. You know, you don't have to do it. And, and I, I guess I would say too, I didn't experience this because I was the first generation, but um, Cameron and Anna and Emily, would you guys say that maybe there is a little bit more pressure on you guys because your parents were involved on a, on a pretty active level with dairy goats? Yeah, I think so. And I mean, yeah, there's always this kind of this expectation that the Thompson girls would be doing showmanship and, um, and all of the other things and then do well at it. But I know Anna and I were both, Anna had, we both had a disaster showmanship experience at nationals. One where Anna's goat got away. <laughs> I remember that still. And she was in tears. Oh, uh, I had a similar thing where I got cut and I was very upset, but, um, 
yeah, so I think there was the expectation to 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 participate anyway and 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 do well. And so I for my own girls, I guess again it's I I'm perfectly happy to let them just show, you know, we have a two-year-old who's kind of smaller that Zoe got to show last year and she had a lot of fun doing it and she won her class and she liked it. And so that might be her goat to show because she's a little easier and smaller and, and she has her doe kid too now, avocado. And so I just, I, I want to kind of build off on that enthusiasm in those areas versus pushing them to do showmanship, I guess. Cameron, I was going to ask you, because I mean, you're a third generation with, I mean, you're you're for much further along than these eight year old granddaughters of ours, because your your grandpa was quite involved with the goats, and he still is he still. Uh, yeah, well, uh, in his mind, he is. He comes over and he mows, so that's that's very important to him. And so, yes, I would say so. Well, about about your about your grandpa, about Ed's dad. Yeah. Who? Um, um, I mean, he had to be pretty involved to start with, wasn't he? Yeah, he was. Um, and then, so there was three of us actively working on it. And I don't know if, for the listeners that don't know this, my grandfather bred Hampshire hogs for the longest time. Um, oh. Him and my dad did it together. And then when my dad got gifted a goat, um, the goats kind of took over and he continued to help mold him in that as well there. But back to the question about pressure. It, yeah, I, I, you know, I did feel pressure especially as I got older I felt like because I kind of knew who I was and I didn't want to let them down or disappoint them and you know I, I think in families that have multiple generations that are actively competing or have had success I think it's 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 very different and it's almost a it, it's very different than you know you're just this is kind of the first generation doing it or something like that if that makes sense so yeah and so I yeah I think I think Laura, like what Laura said, I think just me, seeing what they enjoy and, and encouraging them to do it and not being, um, you know, pushing kids further than they want to be involved at this point. Again, like when they're older, then there'll be some expecta- more expectation around how much to help with chores. And, um, but if kids aren't enjoying doing something, they're not going to continue to enjoy doing it. So, I agree with that. Yeah. Thompson's, thank you guys so much for being on our podcast today. This this is just this is something that Cameron and I have wanted for a long time. So we really appreciate your time and 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 being part of us today. I just want to say it was really fun to visit with you guys. Yeah. I mean, it's just kind of like you're right here in the room. It was good. <laughs> it seemed like the sound was good. And I really just enjoyed talking with you. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Yes. yeah. Thank you very much. Um and, or excuse me, Emily here. Um, where can we find out more information about the Caracol or Legendary Herds? Um, and, and listeners can find out more information about, about you guys. Yeah. Uh, so we have a website that we do try to really keep updated on a pretty regular basis. Uh, com. And then we also have a Facebook page that, we, again, we use, um, try to update frequently. And that's just Caracol Farm um, on Facebook. I will say you guys have one of the most updated pages of websites that I regularly follow. Yeah. Well, that's, that's one thing, again, uh, we had talked about that. What can you do from afar is that Anna and I handle the website and manage that website and take all the pictures and update things like that. So um, that's at least something we can do on that daily basis or on a, on a timely basis. So. That's awesome. 
Yes, as always, listeners, thank you for joining us this week. If you like us, tell a friend. If not, give us some feedback. Um, face, you can find us on Facebook, Apple iTunes, Spotify. Please give us that feedback. Also, if you have any ideas for uh, episodes, let us know as well. We do have our sponsorship link. You can find that on our Facebook. I'll go ahead and push that out as well. So feel free to sign up for a sponsor if you do feel so inclined. Also, thank you to this week's sponsor as well, uh, Laura and Chris uh, Kieser, Four Seasons Farm. Uh, Thank you so much for being our sponsor this week. Thank you, everybody, for being part of Goat Gab, and we'll catch you next week.